have the extremely daunting task this morning of preaching all 10 of the 10 commandments in one sermon. And now you guys know this could easily be a sermon series, right? Like we could take the next 10 weeks and do a sermon on each of these. So obviously we're not gonna be able to get into the weeds. We're not gonna be able to go into considerable detail on any of these commandments. So my goal here is really simple. I want us to have an understanding of God's law in general. Uh, what is the purpose of the law? What is the relevance of the law? All of that. And then understand the 10 commandments in particular and about how they teach us to love God and love others. So buckle up. We're going to be moving really fast through this sermon. But, but here's the bottom line. What we have in the Ten Commandments and what we have in God's law are expressions of God's moral will. What we have here are God's objective moral standards, his expectations for how his creatures that he has made in his image are to live. And I believe that much of the sermon that we're going to talk about today is going to be deeply countercultural in the culture that we live in for many reasons, as we'll get to. But I think chief among them is this. We live in a culture that is opposed to objective moral standards. Here's what I mean by that. We're fine with saying things like, this can be right and wrong for me or for you. Oh, this can be my truth, you know, this can be your truth, whatever else it might be. But the minute we say that, no, this is right, period. This is wrong, period. For everyone in all places, at all times, in all cultures, that's when we start to get a little bit uncomfortable. But God is crystal clear that the God of the Bible is a God who is just, a God who is holy, and he has these standards and these expectations for the way that his people are to live. But let me give you an example of the way that our culture views right and wrong through the words of a very famous, very famous secular philosopher and theologian. Listen to these words. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. So let it go. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. In case you guys don't know, unless you don't have toddler girls like me, that was the theologian Elsa of Arendelle uh, from the movie Frozen, where the point of the song, other than you know, shooting ice out of her hands and all that stuff, the point of the song is that right and wrong are barriers to me being free. There's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free. But the word of God says exactly the opposite. Freedom does not come from getting rid of the boundaries, from getting rid of the restraints. Freedom comes when we live the way that our creator made us to live. When we live our lives in accordance with God's will, not trying to cast off God's will. And so here's the deal. I often say at the beginning of my sermons that I hope you're encouraged this morning, but here's the deal. We're preaching the 10 commandments. I hope you're discouraged this morning. Welcome to Coastal. Uh, because here's the deal. If you're anything like me, and if you have the honesty to admit it, as we go through these 10 commandments, you're gonna go guilty, 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 guilty. Maybe not in the letter, but in the spirit, I have broken all 10 of these. All of us have. In our sin, we cannot keep God's law. And it's supposed to bring us to the point of despair, but we're not supposed to stay there. Because you see that bad news is the very first step in understanding the gospel, the good news. The point of God's law is to reveal our sin and therefore to reveal our need of a savior. 
The law drives us to Christ. The law brings us to the gospel. And then in Christ, it shows us what it looks like for us to love God and love others. So let me give you the main point of the sermon this morning. The law reveals God's holiness, our sin, and our need of Jesus. The 10 commandments show us how to love God and others. And so here's the game plan for this morning. We're gonna just read the first couple of verses by way of introduction. I wanna take a couple of minutes and talk about God's law as a whole. And then we're gonna go through the 10 commandments very quickly and close with some applications. Let's start with the first two verses of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's pray. We praise you, O God, that you are the God who has rescued us. You are the God who has redeemed us through a much greater exodus. Lord, that Jesus, you have saved us from our sin through your death and resurrection. And so Lord, as we study your law this morning, this is a daunting and intimidating passage of scripture because Lord, your law, your perfect standard of holiness shows us how imperfect we are, how sinful we are. So Lord, I pray that on the one hand, as we look at ourselves, as we look at the mirror of, our law, of the law into our lives, that we would be brought to a place of humility and brokenness before you. But Lord, I pray that from that place, you would bring us to Christ, that we would see the glory of the gospel in a fresh and in a new way, that Christ is our law fulfiller. Lord, help us to understand that and appreciate that even more today. And I pray that you would motivate us to follow you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start by just chatting about the law for a minute. Let's talk about the law. My opinion, my experience, the one part of the Bible that I think is more confusing to Christians than anything else is Old Testament law, bar none. We, get, we start these read the Bible in a year plans. I make this joke often, but it's true. We get to like Exodus 20 and we're doing really good up until then. Then from like Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy, we are like, what on earth is going on here? What does this mean? How does this have any relevance to my life today? And we usually get lost and discouraged and just skip over it. But I want us to understand a few things about the law of which I believe, by the way, the 10 commandments are sort of the summary of all of it. And the rest of the Old Testament law is really fleshing out these standards in practice. So let's talk a couple, let's see a few things about the law. First of all, what's the purpose? What is the purpose of the law? Why did God give it? Let me give you a few thoughts here. First of all, the law reveals God's character. The law reveals God's character. It shows us something about God himself. This is what Romans 7, 12 says. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So God is holy. Therefore, those who are made in his image, he says, you are also to be holy. You are to reflect my character in your lives. Here's where we gotta be careful because I've often heard Christians speak in rather negative terms about the law, but the reality is the law is not the problem. I'm the problem. The law is perfect. It's holy. It's good. It's the standard. The problem is that in my sin, I can't keep it. So the law reveals the character of God. It shows us that our God is a just and a righteous and a holy God. But consequently, because it reveals God's holiness, it reveals our sin. The law reveals our sin. This is what we see, for example, in 1 Timothy 1. It says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, and so on and so forth. In other words, the purpose of the law, according to Paul, is to reveal our sin. Some of you guys may have heard of a method of evangelism that was popular a couple of decades ago called the way of the master. Anybody, Ray Comfort, you know, it's pretty popular. And basically the idea behind this way of evangelism was before you get to the gospel, you go through the 10 commandments. You use that as a tool to help someone see that they're a sinner. That's essentially what Jesus did with the rich young ruler. You guys remember the story. He comes to Jesus. Hey, how can I have eternal life? Jesus doesn't say, hey, repeat this prayer after me. Instead, he gives him the 10 commandments. He says, okay, be perfect. And this guy was arrogant enough to go, yeah, I've already done all that. And then Jesus shows him, well, actually, no, you haven't because there's another God before God in your heart and that's money. Because when he tells him, give away all your money, he couldn't do it. The bottom line is Jesus was using the 10 commandments to reveal this man's sin. So the law reveals God's holiness. It reveals our sin. And as a result, it reveals our need. Because the law reveals our sin, it is foolish to think that we can be saved by our own good works. It's foolish to think that we can be saved by our own obedience to the law. This is what Paul said in Galatians 2. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's crystal clear. We cannot be saved by being good. We can't be saved by our obedience. The law cannot and will not save us. It shows us that we need a savior. This is what Martin Luther wrote. After the law has humbled, terrified, and completely crushed you so that you are on the brink of despair, then see to it that you know how to use the law correctly for its function and use is not only to disclose sin and the wrath of God, but also to drive us to Christ, to drive us to Christ. This is the purpose of the law. It teaches us about God. It teaches us about our sinfulness and it shows us that we need a savior. And so then how can the law be fulfilled? If we are sinful and we can't keep the law, then what do we do about the need for the fulfillment of the law? Well, again, let me reiterate, in our sin, we can't fulfill the law because what does the law require? It requires perfect obedience. Here's the deal. We can keep individual commands at one point or another in our lives, but no one of us can keep the law perfectly. This is what James 2.10 says. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. All it takes is one sin to become a lawbreaker. We might think, well, that's not fair. How's that supposed to work? Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that you've got a car that's stuck in the ditch and somebody comes with their truck and they've got a chain and they're gonna tow your car out of the ditch. Now, let me ask you this. How many links in that chain need to break to make that chain totally useless? Just one. Now, would it make much sense for you to look at the other guy down the street also trying to tow a car out of the ditch and say, well, yeah, but I only have one link broken. He has three, so I'm better than him. Oh, well, congratulations, but both of you are still stuck in the ditch. That's the point. In our sin, we can't fulfill the law. So how do we fulfill the law? How can the demands of the law be fulfilled in us? This is where the gospel comes in. 
This is where Jesus comes in. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the law through his life of sinless obedience to the will of the Father. This is why the sinlessness of Jesus is essential to the gospel. Because Jesus, yes, he died on the cross for our sins, but we often forget Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. That's also essential to our salvation, that Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law in our place. And when he died on the cross, Galatians 3 tells us he bore the curse of the law. So let me put it this way. Jesus kept the law perfectly for us. And then he bore the curse of the law that we deserved because of our law breaking. And this is what Romans 8 says. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, the law could not save us because of the weakness of our flesh. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He bore the curse of the law for us. Verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The law is fulfilled in us in union with Christ. When we come to Christ, the one who fulfilled the law perfectly, he takes our sin and we take his righteousness. Guys, that's the gospel. That's the great exchange of the gospel. So let me tell you, how can you fulfill the law? By becoming a Christian, by coming to Christ, by being united to Christ who is our law fulfiller. So if that's the purpose of the law and that's the fulfillment of the law, well, what's the relevance of the law for us today then? If Christ has fulfilled the law, what else is there for us to do? As Paul says, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? What is the purpose? What is the relevance of the law today? And this is a tricky question, y'all. This is often where we get stuck in discussions on the law, right? Is it okay for me to eat bacon or have a shrimp cocktail or get a tattoo or go to work on a Saturday or whatever else it might be? This is where it gets sticky. And so I wanna give you a sentence that I wanna take a couple of minutes to unpack both sides of that sentence. As Christians, we are not under the law, but we learn from the law how to love God and love others. Let me repeat that. As Christians, we are not under the law, but we learn from the law how to love God, how to love others. First part of the sentence, we're not under the law. Don't take my word for it. That's a word-for-word -word quote from Paul in numerous places, Romans and Galatians. And he even uses stronger language in Romans 7. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. I take this to mean by us not being under the law that because we are no longer under the old covenant, we are under a new covenant in Christ. The law that governed the life of God's people under the old covenant is no longer the law that governs the life of God's people under the new covenant. I've used that word covenant a lot. And what I mean by that is this. This is covenantal. We cannot divorce the law from the covenant that it has come in. So we're not under the law. We are dead to the law. Nevertheless, what does 2 Timothy 3.16 say? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. All scripture. Therefore, the law remains God's word for us and it is profitable for us. So we could ask the question, is the Old Testament law relevant for the Christian today? Of course it is. In fact, the most obscure verse in Leviticus is more relevant than this morning's New York Times. Maybe especially so. But here's why. 
because it is the word of the living God to us. So we should learn from its wisdom and apply it to our lives. And this is how Jesus summarized the law in Matthew 22. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the 10 commandments, I believe, were given to show Israel under the old covenant what it looked like for them to love God and to love others. And likewise, as we study them today, we are going to learn vital, timeless principles for how we love God and how we love others. And so let's look at the first four commandments now without any further ado. And let's talk about what it looks like for us to love God from these commandments. Just one quick word about the outline. Uh, Most of the commandments are expressed in negative terms, you know, the thou shalt nots. But I believe that every negative prohibition carries with it a corresponding positive duty. In other words, it's not just saying don't do this, but by implication, there's something we should do. So I'm trying to bring out both uh, in the way that I've expressed the outline here. So all that said, first commandment, worship God only. Worship God only. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me, literally in Hebrew, before my face or in my presence. The God of the Bible will have no rivals. He demands exclusive worship. He is the one true God and he demands exclusive worship. As he says in Isaiah 42, eight, I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I think there's at least two things that we learn from this commandment. The first thing is that God demands exclusive belief, that he is the one true God the triune God of scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God. We are called to a biblical monotheism. This was deeply countercultural for Israel because in the ancient world, they were deeply polytheistic. Namely, there, there were multiple gods, dozens and hundreds of gods, a God for every day of the week, a God for every tree, a God for whatever else there might be. But in contrast to that, God is telling Israel, I am the one true God. You are to worship me alone. The name for every other God is an idol, right? There is one God, one true God. But that's not enough, is it? Because Satan believes everything I just said. He knows there's one true God. Even as it says in James, you know, the demons believe and they shudder. It's not just about belief, it's also devotion. This commandment is also calling us to exclusive devotion, that we must be devoted to God alone. And many times, even as believers, we can give lip service to the idea that I believe in the one true God, but other things in our life can begin to take his place functionally, practically. We can have our priorities all out of whack to where other things become more important to us. And so here's the application. As followers of Christ, we must worship God only meaning worship him exclusively, but we also must make God our top priority in our lives. That God would be the most important person in our lives. No other gods before his face. So the first commandment is worship God only, but the second commandment is worship God rightly. Let me put it this way. The first commandment shows us who we are to worship. The second commandment shows us how we are to worship him. Verse four. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, nor that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." The prohibition here is against making images, making idols, and using them to worship God. Again, deeply countercultural. All ancient religions had images that would be set up. And these images were believed to be the representation of the deity. They would partake of the essence of the deity, and it would be their representative on the earth that they would be worshiped through. And I think of at least three reasons why God forbade the worship of him through idols. Again, it's not about other gods even. This is about worshiping the true God by way of images. The first reason is that it's degrading to God. It is degrading to God to worship him through an image. Because look around Israel, that's how the Canaanites worship their false gods. That's how the Egyptians worshiped their false gods. And God is saying, I'm not like Ra or Baal or Asherah or Molech or any of these other idols that are in the nations around you. I am different. And I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I am jealous for your affections. I won't have any rivals. But here's an interesting one you might not have thought of. Worshiping God by way of images is also deeply degrading to humanity. Why? Because who does God say his image is? We are, right? God made male and female in his image from the beginning. So when I make something out of wood or stone and say, you are the image of God, what does that say about me? That I am not the image of God. It's a denial of my humanity, but it gets worse. Third reason, I think it's degrading to Jesus because what does Colossians say about Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews says he is the exact imprint of his nature. God's saying, you don't get to make these images of me because when I'm good and ready, I'm gonna send the perfect image of me into this world. The one who represents me and embodies my presence perfectly. And if you know your book of Exodus, you know this is the first of the 10 commandments that they broke, isn't it? Exodus 32, the golden calf, they thought they were worshiping Yahweh, but through the calf, he quickly broke this commandment. And now by way of application for us today, how does this commandment apply to us today? Because I hope not anyway, but I don't think most of you have statues in your home that you're bowing down to. If you do, we have some counseling available here at Coastal. Uh, But listen, what is the heart behind this commandment? What is the principle here? Here it is. God gets to define how God is to be worshiped. God gets to define how God is to be worshiped. We don't get to make it up. And so we must strive that in both our private and our corporate worship, that we always worship God in accordance with his word. doesn't matter how sincere we are if it's not biblical. We have to worship God according to his word and his word alone. And God will not hold us guiltless if we worship him in a way that he has not prescribed. Ask Nadab and Abihu, ask Uzzah. We are to worship God rightly. He takes his worship very seriously. Third commandment, honor God's name. Verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You know, in our culture, a name is not all that significant, right? We pick names because, you know, I like the way it sounds, you know, or 
that sounds cute, that sounds clever, whatever it might be. Uh, but in scripture, that was definitely not the case. This was a culture where names were deeply significant, where a person was named, their name represented their character and their reputation. It was deeply meaningful. And so I think we can even broaden the application of this commandment, not just to talking about God's name specifically, but, but even about how we talk about God in general the way that we speak about God, God will hold us accountable for the way that we talk about him and the way that we talk about his name. And there's a lot of different ways we could apply this. The most obvious, I think, that we're most familiar with and it's worth mentioning is cursing, right? The name of Jesus Christ, the name of God is not a cuss word. Uh, It's not something we say because we stub our toe or hit your finger with a hammer or whatever. We ought to show the utmost reverence in using the name of God. But I think there's another way that this applies that we might not think about as often. It literally says in Hebrew, you shall not lift up the name of God in vain. You shall not carry the name of God in vain. I almost think it's a sense that we can take God's name in vain by attaching God to our own agendas that he has nothing to do with. By saying things like, uh, I'm doing this because it's God's will. And really you have no idea if it is or not because it's not in accordance with his word with scripture. So we ought to be so careful in the way that we speak about God and his name and his will. But in contrast, we do what Jesus taught us to do. How did he teach us to pray? Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We speak of God's name and his character with reverence and with respect and with honor. Fourth commandment, honor God's time. Verse eight, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And now I'm not gonna spend much time on this commandment because if you were here three weeks ago, we did a whole sermon on the Sabbath. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it if you missed it. So all I wanna say here is to those of you who were here back then, How's it going? Let's check up. It's been a couple of weeks. How's the last few Sabbaths been for you? Are you enjoying it? And we saw in that sermon, I don't believe this is a command for believers today, but I think it is a spiritual discipline that we neglect to our own spiritual and physical peril. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't already, take one day in seven to focus on rest and worship. So these first four commands, I believe, show us what it looks like for us to love God. We love God through worshiping him alone and worshiping him rightly. We love God by reverently speaking of him and his name and by making time for God. But the next six commandments are gonna show us what it looks like to love others. Show us what it looks like to love others. And the first others that you will ever encounter in your life are your parents. So commandment number five is honor your parents. They are the closest neighbors, if you will. When it says, love your neighbor, we start in the home. Now, when it says in verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That word honor is often translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as glory. It speaks of the weightiness or the value of something. In other words, he's saying, treat your parents as those who are worthy of respect, of value, those who are honorable. Amen. Now, 
It's talking about the honor, the respect, the reverence that we ought to have in the family. And then he gives a promise that you'll live long in the land. I take this to be covenantal language rather than individual language. In other words, where are they on the way to right now in the book of Exodus? The promised land, right? The land that God had promised to Abraham. And what he's saying is, if you are the kind of society that values the family, you will dwell long in the promised land. You're gonna last long in the promised land because the family is at the heart of God's plan for humanity. And I believe that so many of the problems in our culture and in our world today can be traced back to this deficiency, that we've lost the home. So many of the authority problems that we have in our culture are because we don't understand what it looks like to honor our parents and to require our children to honor us. And so I wanna speak directly here both to children first and then to parents second. Children, the word of God says here that you are to honor your father and your mother. Paul quotes this passage in Ephesians chapter six that we are to honor our parents. This means treating them with respect. This means that as long as you are living under their roof and as long as they are financially supporting you, that means obedience. And now we all honor our parents. There's no age limit on this command. It didn't say honor your father and mother till you hit 18. Honor just looks a little bit different than when you're five, than when you're 35, than when you're 55, but we never stop honoring. This command goes on and on. We are to honor the parents that God has given us. And now parents, let's speak to you for a minute. The word of God calls us both to discipline and to disciple our children. That's an application of this commandment. We are to discipline our children. Here's what I mean by that. It's not just wrong or annoying for them to disobey you. It's sin because God's word says that they are to honor you. So when we neglect biblically and lovingly disciplining our children, we are enabling sin in our home. We have a responsibility from God to lovingly and caringly discipline our children, but not just discipline, disciple to teach them the word of God, to teach them God's ways, to pray with them, to read the word with them. You know, it's not a coincidence that I talked about Frozen in the beginning of this sermon. Here's why. If we are not willing to disciple our children in a biblical worldview, the world will be more than happy to disciple them for us. We ain't gonna like the results very much. So let's be committed to disciplining and discipling our children in a godly and in a biblical way because loving others starts in the home. Sixth commandment is this, protect life, protect life. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Now, let me just say a quick word about structure. The next several commandments are very quick. They're very rapid fire. In fact, in Hebrew, there are only two words each. And let me just 10 seconds of nerdiness for you. Uh, There's actually two different words in Hebrew for no. The first is more temporal. It's like, hey, in this circumstance, in this situation, don't do this. The second is emphatic and permanent. It's more like, hey, never do this. The 10 commandments consistently use the second one. So we could translate each of these commandments. It's just two words. The first is never, and the second is the name of the sin. So this one says, never murder. What is in view here is unjustified and unlawful taking of human life. And we know from the New Testament that Jesus even expanded the application of this commandment, didn't he? Because you could say, oh, I never killed anybody. Say, okay, but have you ever hated someone? I think we can even apply this to unjustified acts of violence against another person. 
The point here, the heart behind this commandment is that we would honor and protect and value human life because God is the giver of life and human beings are made in the image of God. Therefore, they are worthy of being respected and honored and valued. And what does this look like for us by way of application? As Christians, we are called to we are called to protect and to value human life at every stage. I like to put it this way, from the womb to the tomb. How about this way? From conception to the resurrection. From the very beginning of life to the very end of life, it is a human life that is worth being valued and honored and protected because it is made in the image of God. We have to be emphatically clear on that as Christians. Any taking of human life at any point along that spectrum is murder and it is a sin against God. Any unjustified violence is a sin against God because it is against someone made in his image. Any hatred in our hearts or any malice in our words disrespects the image of God in another person. In contrast to that, we should value life. We should protect life as Christians. The next commandment is this, honor marriage. Honor marriage. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery or never commit adultery adultery. And obviously adultery being sexual relations with a person who is married outside of marriage. And listen, the 10 commandments, I think there's an interesting thing going on here. Um, they tend to give the most extreme form of sin within a category of sins. And by implication, they are forbidding everything within that category. And we're not used to that because in modern law, it's got to be super specific. And we go and we look for details. So let me give you an illustration. In the United States since 1789, we have enacted 30,000 laws, more than 30,000 laws. We look at the Old Testament, we're like, man, 600, that's a lot. Like, have you seen our laws? The reason being in our system, hey, I can look for the loophole. I didn't specifically do that. That's not the way biblical law worked. It was deriving application from principles. And so I say all that to say this point, this commandment, I believe, is outlawing any form of sexual sin with the most extreme example of that being adultery. As Christians, we are called to purity. We're called to purity in our minds, in our hearts, with our actions, with what we watch on TV, with what we look at on the internet. We are called to purity. And that's the application, it's simple. As Christians, we ought to pursue sexual purity in our hearts and in our actions. And in doing so, we are honoring marriage. If you're married, then sexual purity is the way that you honor your marriage. If you're not, but they are, it's the way that you honor their marriage. What if you're both single? Honor your future marriages by striving to be sexually pure, right? We honor marriage through sexual purity. Next commandment, respect others' property. Respect others' property. Verse 15, you shall not steal or never steal. Now, this one's pretty self-explanatory, y'all. Like, if it ain't yours, don't touch it. If it ain't yours, leave it alone. This one's really easy. It says that what they have, God has given to them, not to you. If he wanted to give it to you, he was perfectly capable of doing so. And so we respect their property, but instead we're generous. You know, this commandment reminds us that God is deeply cares about justice and we reflect that by our refusal to take what does not belong to us. So the application here is very simple. As I've already said, 
If it's not yours, don't touch it. Don't take it. Be content with what the Lord has given you. But I'd like to even take it a step farther because in Ephesians chapter four, Paul makes this interesting statement. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but the verse doesn't end there. It says, but let him work hard, laboring with his own hands that he might have something to share with those who are in need. In other words, when does a thief stop being a thief? Not just when he stops stealing, but when he becomes a hard worker and he becomes generous because that's the opposite of stealing. The opposite of stealing is hard work and generosity. So let me encourage you, instead of taking what's not yours, be generous, give away freely, work hard and diligently for the glory of God. The next commandment, speak the truth. Speak the truth. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, bearing false witness, this is courtroom language. This is legal language. As we've already seen, the most extreme form of a sin and a category to cover all instances of dishonesty. In a culture before they had, you know, security cameras and forensic evidence and, you know, juries and modern court systems and all of that, eyewitness testimony was absolutely essential. And if you could not trust the witnesses, you could not do justice. So it was very serious to not bear false witness. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we serve a God who Titus 1-2 says, God does not lie. So we must be a people that are committed to the truth, even when it's inconvenient. Because there are a lot of times, you guys know this, where it's just easier to lie. It's just easier. We might even justify it by saying, but the truth's gonna hurt them. That's not for us to decide. It's our job to speak the truth. And so there's two sides to this. The first side is the negative. Don't lie. We can't even say, oh, it's just a small little white lie and justify it. We are to speak the truth. But again, there's another side. It's not just don't lie, it's speak the truth. Because there are sometimes we are withholding the truth in a situation where we need to speak the truth. We can justify ourselves by saying, well, I didn't lie. Yeah, but you had truth that would have been helpful or loving to that person that you withheld. So we speak the truth. We seek to be people of honesty and integrity in our businesses, with our taxes, in all of our relationships. We are people of honesty and integrity. The last commandment is this, be content, be content. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You guys ever see one of those pictures where you see all the different pictures and you're like, which one of these does not belong? That's kind of how I've felt about the 10th commandment before. Because the rest of these are so concrete, you know, hey, don't kill, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. But, but coveting, that's an emotion, right? To covet is to have an intense desire, a lust, a craving for something that does not belong to me, but belongs to someone else. But actually, when we think about it, it makes perfect sense because this is at the heart of disobedience, wanting something, craving something, desiring something that God has not given to me, or God has said that it is not mine to rightfully have. The opposite of coveting is contentment, to be content with how God has blessed me, to be content with where God has put me in life, to be content with what is mine. And we grow in contentment through gratitude. This is the encouragement that I have. Practice being grateful for how God has blessed you and learn how to praise him for how he's blessed others. That way, instead of it being, man, God, why does my neighbor get the new car and I have this old thing? 
Now, why did he get that promotion when everyone knows I work harder? Instead of coveting, instead of jealousy and envy, we're grateful. Lord, thank you for how you've blessed me. And he must've really needed that. You know what they need more than I do. So I'm gonna praise you on their behalf. I'm gonna thank you on their behalf. That's contentment. (sighs) We made it. This was such a hard sermon to preach, guys. And not, not because I'm trying to find what to say, because I'm like, how on earth do I leave out so many things I wanna say? Guys, this is, there's so much here. So my hope is that over the next two weeks in your small groups, you guys will go in much more depth than I was able to go this morning to ring out all of the implications and the applications of all 10 of these commandments. I hope if you don't have these memorized that you will, that you'll memorize these, that you will meditate on them. And here's the deal. I hope that there's two things that happen as a result. I hope, first of all, as I mentioned in the intro, that as we look into the law of God, that we look at it and it brings a little bit of holy humbleness and brokenness and discouragement. A sense of, man, I have broken all of these in one way or another, that I am sinful, that I am broken. But not that we would wallow in self-pity and in despair, but that that would drive us to Christ. It would drive us to the gospel because I hope you're more in love with Jesus when you consider the fact that every moment of his life, he perfectly obeyed all 10 of these, perfectly. It's incredible, the obedience of our savior. He is the one who fulfilled the law in our place and died in our place. That's the only way that we can be saved. The message of this sermon is not go out of here and try harder to be good so that God will like you. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus did this in our place and by faith in him, we can finally have a relationship with our creator. And if you're here today and you don't have that, I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come forward now. And during this last song or after the service, I'd invite you to come and pray and talk with someone about how you can have a relationship with Christ. And with that, I wanna invite the worship team and leave you with one final thought. There's two ways that you can misapply the law of God. The first way is to try to use it as a way to be saved. We've already seen that doesn't work. It can't work and it won't work. But there's another way that we can go wrong. And this way is to say, well, because Jesus has saved me and because I'm saved and my sins are forgiven, therefore it really doesn't matter how I live now. It really doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want right now and it doesn't matter. I don't need to obey God. I can't please God. Let me tell you, as Christians in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, our striving for obedience really does please God. Of course, we're not perfect, but it pleases him. I thought about this illustration as I was preparing for this sermon. You know, uh, you guys know it's because I talk about them every single sermon. I've got two little girls. One's three. One will be two next month. That's Leah is the younger one. And we have these small little drawers in our living room that we keep all their coloring supplies in, you know, all their coloring books and all their markers. And let me tell you, first of all, markers and toddlers, it's a terrible combination. Like the world is their coloring book. You know, we don't have a throw pillow or a rug or a couch that's not just been, you know, destroyed. But so the the living room was a mess the other day and I told Leah, all right, it's time to help clean up. So she's trying to put these coloring books back in these little drawers. And so first of all, she's trying to put like a ton of coloring books into this tiny little drawer and it's just not working. Like she's putting them in all sideways. There's way too many of them. She's trying to shove them in there and she just starts getting really frustrated. So she starts shaking the thing and she starts yelling and she's getting so mad that she can't get the coloring books in there. Now, as a parent, what do you think a parent does in that moment? What's wrong with you? 
Just turn it this way. Hey, there's too many. There's other drawers. Get it together. What are you thinking? Or I was pleased that she was trying to obey. And even though she was not doing it perfectly, even though there was room for growth, in that moment, I was well pleased with her. Do you realize that that is just a dim, dim echo of the way that your heavenly father looks at you? That even when we get frustrated with ourselves, when we're trying to obey and we're not doing it perfectly, we picture God saying, hey, get it together, try harder, fix it. But in reality, he looks at you in Christ and he says, is there room for growth? Of course there is. But you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. And it brings joy to my heart to see you trying, to see you striving. And so here's the deal. We cannot follow God's law perfectly in this life. One day we will in glory, but not now. But it pleases the heart of our heavenly father. It brings him joy when we strive to live in accordance with his will. It pleases him. So that's the encouragement. In Christ, let's strive to please our Father by walking in accordance with his will. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we are reminded as we study your law this morning of how far we fall short. Lord, how desperately we need you. How we could never do what you have required of us. Lord, but how Jesus is our mighty savior, our righteous savior who fulfilled the law for us, who died for us, who rose again for us. And Lord, by faith in him, by the power of your spirit, we really can begin to walk in newness of life. We really can begin to walk in a way that pleases you. Would you strengthen us? Would you help us? Would you empower us to do just that for your glory alone? We love you, God. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray.